Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. Jenny, I thought we could spend a little bit of time on the podcast discussing pancreatitis. I had a little flurry of cases over the last couple of weeks, and we know this is how it happens all the time. It's almost like these problems are contagious, and we see them in groups. And a number of questions came up regarding the diagnosis and the management. So I figured if I had questions, if my residents had questions, there's probably a lot of questions out there on the topic, and it'd be perfect for us to get into. Sound good to you? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Pancreatitis is an acute inflammatory process of the pancreas, pretty self-explanatory, and it's pretty common. The progression that you can see from the mild form to the severe form occurs, again, in about 10 to 15% of patients, and the mortality rate, the overall mortality rate here is 5%, which that's not insignificant at all. No, it's really high, actually. Now, the most common causes are alcohol and gallstones, but we also have to think about toxins or medications, hypertriglyceridemia, and strictures or masses. And just doing a little bit of space repetition from what we talked about last week, we talked about the black widow spider bite, which is the med student answer to what is the cause of this patient's pancreatitis, right? <laughs> it's a black widow bite. So that's, that's your space repetition, everybody. Now, pathophysiology-wise, there's kind of three phases here that we can go through very briefly. First, you have some local inflammation. This probably results from obstruction of the pancreatic or bile ducts or direct toxicity from the pancreatic cells themselves. As that inflammation develops, it results in more pancreatic enzyme activation, which starts to actually auto-digest the pancreas itself. In phase two, you have that enzymatic digestion leading to necrosis of the pancreas, and you can actually get erosion into vascular structures, which can cause hemorrhage. And we often talk about hemorrhagic pancreatitis. Most of our patients don't get that far. We get them to the ED before that happens, but it's something to look out for. And then the third phase of pancreatitis is the release of systemic inflammatory mediators. And what happens here is the patients start to have a multi-system organ dysfunction that looks very similar to a sepsis patient. They can have acute renal failure, cardiac dysfunction, ARDS, and even disseminated intravascular coagulation. Now, making this diagnosis is going to rely on three factors, and you really need to have two out of the three. So first, you're going to be looking for signs or symptoms that are consistent with pancreatitis, and we'll talk about those. Second, you are going to be looking for lipase elevation. Now, this is going to be greater than or equal to three times the normal reference range, and that value is going to depend on your lab. And then last, imaging, usually a CT scan that's consistent with pancreatitis. So you need two of those three. There's a couple of important points in there that I think we should hone in on. First is that the lipase elevation has to be three times or more the upper limit of the normal reference range. And the reason for that is that even though lipase is relatively specific to the pancreas, it can be elevated in a number of intra-abdominal processes. And we found that the three times upper limit makes it very specific for pancreatitis. We're talking about over 95%. The second important thing there is that a CT is not required to make the diagnosis, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. Now, since the history and physical exam are a critical part of the diagnosis, let's review those pieces just a bit. Right. So for the history and symptoms, first, you're going to be talking about abdominal pain. Now, this is typically going to be an epigastric pain, but it could be right upper quadrant or left upper quadrant. It's going to become more diffuse as the inflammation progresses, which makes sense. It should have a pretty rapid onset of pain. So usually it's going to happen over just a course of a few hours. And the pain is usually described as constant, often severe, and may radiate to the back. 
The patient also might have nausea and vomiting, and they may tell you that they've had a history of prior similar episodes. The physical exam, again, is going to help, and but it's going to vary based on how sick the patient is in front of you. You can have vital sign abnormalities, again, depending on how bad the disease is. Early on, you may simply see a little bit of tachycardia in response to pain, but later in the disease, you can see hypotension, tachycardia, and frank shock may develop. A low-grade fever is common. Again, there's inflammatory mediators that are circulating here. That's not because the patient has an infection. It's just a response to all of those inflammatory mediators. Epigastric tenderness is kind of the hallmark here. You usually are going to see significant epigastric tenderness. And again, depending on how far along they are, they may or may not have peritoneal signs. You may find that the patient has jaundice, especially if they've got an obstruction of the chymon bile duct as the etiology for their pancreatitis. And then hemorrhagic pancreatitis, which we talk about, is a fairly rare complication. But if you have it, you can see ecchymosis or discoloration around the umbilicus. That's the Cullen sign that we learn about. Or you could see ecchymosis or discoloration around the flank, and that's the Gray-Turner sign. Jenny, we mentioned the lipase, but let's talk a little bit about other diagnostic tests that we have to think about. Typically, these patients will get a number of lab tests, but only some of them are actually necessary. A hepatic panel is useful, particularly if you think the patient might have gallstone pancreatitis. If that gallstone is lodged in the common duct, you may see elevations of bilirubin, which may guide further management. Hepatic enzyme elevations are commonly seen as well in this setting. Triglyceride levels can be helpful as well, particularly in cases where gallstones and alcohol aren't thought to be the case. A triglyceride level greater than 1,000 milligrams per deciliter is highly suggestive of hypertriglyceridemic pancreatitis, and I've seen this, and it's really cool. Jenny, you mentioned a couple of labs in there, but you didn't mention the amylase. Am I not getting an amylase anymore? Nope. It's really a very nonspecific marker, and lipase has largely supplanted it for diagnostic accuracy. All right, fair enough, but when I have to admit these patients, my admitting team often asks me for an LDH. What's the deal with that test? Oh, well, there they're probably asking for it so they can work out a Ranson score. Ranson's criteria are a set of features and lab tests that can be used to predict mortality. The score is run on admission and then a cu- again a couple of days later. It ranges from 0 to 7, and the higher the score, the higher the mortality. This criteria isn't used to make the diagnosis at all, but it really is used to predict outcomes and possibly guide disposition. So we'll drop a table of the score in the show notes so you can take a look. We mentioned earlier that imaging isn't needed on all ED patients. If you've got a good story for pancreatitis and a good exam, as well as an appropriately elevated lipase, you're done. But Jenny, there are some patients we're going to get CTs on. So who needs a CT scan in the emergency department? So if you're getting imaging, CT scan is going to be your diagnostic modality of choice. It's useful not only because it's great at seeing pancreatic inflammation, but it can also give you other potential causes of abdominal pain, as well as finding complications of the pancreatitis. If the diagnosis is in doubt, your lipase isn't elevated, or the presentation isn't cut and dry, a CT scan can be helpful. Now, additionally, if you think the patient has a complication of pancreatitis, like a pseudocyst, an abscess, or the hemorrhagic variety, CT scan is going to be helpful. But these complications are usually not present at ED presentation. They develop later in the course. Now, finally, if the patient is on the sicker end of the pancreatitis scale, early CT may be helpful because complications are more likely in those sicker patients. All right. So diagnosis and doubt, suspicion of complications, or the patient's really sick, we're going to get the CT in the emergency department. Otherwise, not really needed. And that, I think, makes a lot of sense. Ultrasound, on the other hand, should probably be obtained in all patients with pancreatitis, right? 
Absolutely. And here, the earlier you get the ultrasound, the better. Well, ultrasound is a suboptimal imaging modality for diagnosing pancreatitis. It's superior to CT for finding gallstones and common bile duct dilatation. So you're going to want to get an ultrasound as soon as possible. There was one study that found that ultrasound changed management in 55%, 6 out of 11 cases. This was in a Harvey study back in 1999, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. This can convert a medically managed disease to a surgically or interventionally managed one. If the patient has gallstone pancreatitis, you should consult surgery as well as GI to see whether the patient needs a cholecystectomy or an ERCP. All right. So just to reiterate all of that again, early CT, not typically needed. Early ultrasound, on the other hand, is a critical part of your ED workup. If you've got pancreatitis and you have a suspicion for biliary disease, but your ultrasound is negative, you can consider getting an MRCP, which is the gold standard at this point. All right. Now that's enough on the imaging and the diagnosis. Let's move on to management. Most of the care here focuses on supportive measures. Give analgesics, give antiemetics, and give IV fluids. Jenny, in the past, we were pretty aggressive about IV fluids in these patients. In fact, I was taught that the patients should get anywhere from four to eight liters of fluids in the first 12 hours, but this has come under a lot of fire recently. Absolutely. The need for fluids goes back to the pathophysiology, but the bottom line is that pancreatitis causes third spacing of fluids, mainly from increased capillary permeability, much like what you see in sepsis. And in essence, pancreatitis is sepsis just without the infectious part. We're learning more and more that our large fluid boluses and sepsis may be deleterious, and pancreatitis is very similar. I think more conservative recommendations probably make sense here. The more conservative resuscitation for me would be starting with two to four liters of a balanced solution over 24 hours. Give IV fluid boluses as needed for hypotension and volume depletion, and consider early administration of vasoactive substances, so things like norepinephrine or even epinephrine, if you need support of the blood pressure. One of the other keys is that I was taught all patients with pancreatitis should be NPO, and we were often asked to drop an NG tube. Again, this is pretty outdated based on our current understanding. Recent evidence actually supports early enteral nutrition. This was from Call in 2003. So recommendations now are that if the patient tolerates oral intake, start immediately. If the patient does not tolerate oral intake and has continuous emesis, an NG tube might be useful along with parenteral nutrition. All right, let's hit some of the finer points in management. Antibiotics, which are often used particularly because the patient meets SIRS criteria, aren't useful early on except when the patient has concomitant cholangitis. Otherwise, aside from the patient with cholangitis, there is no benefit for prophylactic antibiotics. What about those patients with hypertriglyceridemic pancreatitis? What is the modification in management here? The key here is that we've got to lower those triglycerides if we're going to improve the patient's symptoms. If we just do the standard supportive care, these patients are probably going to get worse. First, we can give a lipid-lowering medication. Gemfibrozil is the one that is usually talked about, but that's not going to work very quickly. The options for rapidly lowering are plasmapheresis and insulin therapy. There's not a ton of literature on either, and there's definitely not good literature comparing one to the other. But the little bit that's out there says insulin therapy should probably be your first line because it's much less invasive than plasmapheresis. Obviously, you're going to be doing this in conjunction with your ICU team, which brings us to disposition. Most of these patients are going to be admitted to the hospital, and those with higher Ransom scores or Apache scores are going to need the ICU. There is a group of patients who have mild pancreatitis and can be managed as outpatients. You're looking here for a patient whose pain and nausea are managed with oral medications, 
who can take food and water by mouth, and who have reliable follow-up. Additionally, you don't want to send home any patient who has gallstone pancreatitis without consultation. All right, Jenny, that's a lot on pancreatitis, a little longer than our normal podcast, but a great topic, something that people are going to see every day, every shift, or at least once a week or so. Let's move from there into some take-home points so everybody's ready to manage this when they go to work. Of course. First, pancreatitis is diagnosed by a combination of clinical features like epigastric pain with radiation to the back, nausea, vomiting, etc., and then diagnostic tests, so lipase that's three times or more the normal limit, and a CT scan. Second, a right upper quadrant ultrasound should be performed looking for gallstones as this finding significantly alters the management. Third, the focus of management is on supportive care, so IV fluids while central to therapy should be given judiciously and titrated to end organ perfusion and then control pain and nausea. And last, patients with mild pancreatitis who are tolerating oral intake and can reliably follow up can be discharged home. All right, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.